You're listening to Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show about books, people who read, and how reading at its very best is a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. There is the old philosophical question. If a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does it make a sound? Likewise, if you read a book and don't discuss it, have you enjoyed all the perks of being a book lover? I'm your host, Amy. I've been a member of numerous book clubs over the last 25 years and started quite a few. I love asking people what they're reading so that they'll ask me the same. I'm a vintage bookseller, a traveler wannabe, and a fanatic about dogs. And I'm your host, Carrie. I'm an English teacher, a freelance writer, a blogger, and the person whose Instagram feed features more photos of my cats than my kids. Each week, we will talk with a guest who shares the love of reading, how they impart that passion, and what books really catch them on fire. We will also tell you about our literary lives, what books are on our nightstands, and other bookish fun. Welcome. This is a rebroadcast of an interview we did in late October with Michael Drury, the artistic director of Pandora Productions. I thought this would be a great time to rebroadcast because Pandora Productions has a new musical currently on stage called Choir Boy that will be performed until January 25th. This interview had an impact on me because it inspired me to see their show Fun Home, which I like so much that I was at the new show's opening night last weekend. It completely opened my eyes to the incredible productions local theater can bring to the community. Do you love a good Broadway show? So does Michael Drury, the producing artistic director of Pandora Productions, a theater company solely dedicated to telling the stories of the LGBTQ community and this passion made him tenacious in pursuing the rights to produce Fun Home, a Broadway musical based on the critically acclaimed 2007 graphic memoir of the same name by Alison Bechtel, who's best known for her comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For. The play adaptation won the Tony Award for Best Musical and Best Original Score. Pandora's production will be the regional premiere of this play. Michael talks to us about the process theater companies go through to get rights to perform popular Broadway plays, why he feels it's important to have an LGBTQ plus focused theater, and the innovative way the company is designing the fun home set to give a big nod to the original graphic novel. Amy and I have a guest in the studio. His name is Michael Drury, and he is the producing artistic director at Pandora Productions here in Louisville. So we're going to let him tell us and our listeners all about Pandora Productions and what they do. So welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Um, In a nutshell, Pandora Productions is the only theater company in the state of Kentucky exclusively dedicated to telling the stories of the LGBTQ plus community. That is a nutshell. That is a nutshell. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background in theater, and how you got to this place. Well, I was a professional actor for many years and studied theater in college, was interested since middle school, and really kind of got tired of trying to be a professional actor because there's a lot of work involved with that. If you aren't in a bigger city, There's a lot of traveling involved because I was doing a lot of tours and I was away from home a lot. And home, just my apartment, really. But I just got really tired of that lifestyle. It wasn't working for me. I really like to have roots somewhere and I like to be around friends. Um, I do love working with different theater companies and, and traveling, but I really like my roots. And so I was really tired of that circuit, and my friend Bo Cecil, who founded this company, along with uh, two others, he was just sitting in my living room one day, and we were talking about a show that we'd like to do, and he said, you know, after that, I think I'm going to 
give up producing. I don't really like it. It's not for me. And I was like, oh my gosh, well, I've been thinking about settling down and producing, but I don't know the first thing about it. And he was like, I promise you, if I can do it, anybody can do it. And I said, you know, if you're not going to do it anymore, and Pandora Productions is a company that's not going to be producing anymore, I'd be interested in buying it from you. And he was like, uh, Michael, it's a couple of people on a mailing list and a few props, <laughs> a few props and a few costumes. You can have it. <laughs> and so in true Pandora style, he hands over a box, basically. And that's how I became producing artistic director at Pandora Productions. Now, at the time, we weren't exclusively dedicated to telling the stories of the LGBTQ plus community. But... Up until that point, that really is all he'd done. He just didn't define himself that way. With one exception, he had done uh, Night Mother, which isn't an LGBTQ-themed uh, show. You know, I struggled for the first couple of years after I took it over because I didn't really know what I was doing. I'd never done it before. I really hadn't even directed a whole lot by then. And I, I was with a group of advisors and, you know, looking at the history of Pandora and seeing the kind of work that they'd done, one of the advisors said, Clearly, this company wants to be an LGBTQ plus community theater company. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that feels so limiting. You know, I feel like that we just we're, we're niching our audience and we won't be able to expand. And she was like, I'm telling you, I think that's what it ought to be. And we left that meeting and I pretty much decided that she was right. And from that moment on, there was really no stopping our trajectory from that point, really. And many times I was in the way of it, really, <laughs> because I didn't know what I was doing. But, and she was growing, because that's really what she wanted to be. She was absolutely right. Well, explain what, because I, I don't know this myself, what does a producer, you know, what does that exactly mean to produce a show? Uh, basically getting the money together. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So I'm always on the hunt for sponsors. As the producer of the company, I also am the artistic director. So a lot of the things fold in on themselves, and I wear many hats. So casting really is usually just the artistic director or the director of a production. But because I wear the producer hat, I think of that as sort of my function too. But basically a producer is the person who finds the money, finds the facilities, finds all those administrative things, and is out in the community and networking and, and finding people interested in being a part of the board. You know, that's a tricky thing to get the right mix of people in the room and people who aren't afraid to ask for money or find sponsors, advertisers, and people like that. Right. So how long has Pandora Productions been around, and how long have you been a part of it? So Pandora was founded in 1995. Interesting story. So Bo and Billy Blake Hall and uh, Craig Swat came together because they wanted to write a musical based on the myth of Pandora. And they decided that they would just do a couple of shows to try to make a little money to fund that project. Well, I don't know if you all know a whole lot about theater and financing theater, but you don't make a whole lot of money. <laughs> yeah. So it was yeah. kind of a crazy idea <laughs> yeah. anyway. Yeah. And to date, we have not done the Myth of Pandora musical. But that was why they came together. And that's why we got the name Pandora Productions, because that was their aim, was to get enough money to create this musical based on the myth of Pandora. And you still haven't done it. And we still haven't done it. That's and we probably... <laughs> yeah, you can just stop right there. <laughs> and we probably won't do it now because it doesn't fit our mission. Yeah. <laughs> I took over the company in... It was 2000 that Bo and I had that conversation in my living room. And 2001 of January that year, we did Kiss of the Spider Woman. And that was his last foray into producing. And I produced with him to learn you know, at least on one show, what really producing meant. 
And at the time, I think we did that show for, I don't know, maybe $600. Oh, wow. It was really cheap. We did it at the old Rudd, uh, the Roger Kipling downtown mm-hmm. in Louisville. And, uh, you know, at the time, Kenny and Sheila, who owned the place, weren't charging anybody any rent. They just wanted good theater in their space. And, you know, it's an old, old building. And, you know, it was really, really bootstrap theater. <laughs> I guess your production budget or your operating budget, how has that changed in the, what, 19... 19- Year, all, years, yeah, 19 yeah. years. How has that? Uh, a lot. Yeah. It'll be almost 25 years next year oh, wow. since Bo and, and the boys founded the company. Right. Yeah. I call, in fact, I called Bo. It was right after I formed a board, 2004, we incorporated, and we passed a budget of $40,000. So considering what we had spent on Kisses Spider-Woman to where we were, I was like, can you believe that we just did this? And I was a nervous wreck. Because I thought, God, $40,000 is so much money. And now our budget is $250,000. Oh, wow. So, so that's how much we've grown over the years. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. It is kind that's of amazing. Awesome. And still scary. It's just the, the problems just get bigger. You right. know, the, it's the same thing. It's just bigger. So with Pandora Productions being solely focused on LGBTQ plus issues, why do you think that that's an important focus to have? Well, considering that we're the only theater company in the state that does that, and that there are only a handful across the country that that is their main focus. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, when I took over the company, that was important to me. And I felt like I wanted to tell stories that reflected our community, um, because I didn't feel like they were getting told necessarily from our community. And, and so therefore, I didn't feel like they were always getting told honestly mm-hmm. or with integrity. And I just wanted to bring dignity to the characters that were getting portrayed, honestly. You know, on TV, sometimes they get stereotyped and, you know, they're caricatures of themselves. And I just really didn't want that. And I, I thought there were a lot of stories that needed to be told that weren't getting told, really. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do still. How do you all go about finding the plays that you choose mm-hmm. That's to a good do question. each season. People ask me that all the time. Uh, I get recommended things a lot by our audience. Our subscribers are, you know, a lot of gay men who travel a lot and see a lot of theater all over the country, and in particular New York. And so I get a lot of recommendations from those who travel and see stuff. I also get people who submit things to me all the time or bring to my attention things that I might not have heard of because they're rather obscure and they're not getting a life in New York uh-huh. yet, uh-huh. you know. So it, it comes from a lot of different sources. Mm-hmm. And plus, I do a lot of research, and I read a lot. You know, I also see what other LGBTQ-centered theaters across the country are doing, see if there are any titles that they're aware of that I'm not aware of yet. Do you have to adapt things? Like you find a book or you find a novel or something, and then you all adapt it? Or do you generally try to find things that are already in play format that you can then have an easier time getting to the stage? Mm -hmm. Most often, the plays and musicals we perform are already published, and that's much easier. Mm -hmm. Um, But we do create our own work sometimes. We haven't in a while, but we have done that. Uh, We did a compilation of rural lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people who we worked with at the Office of Gay Studies at uh, L and also the uh, Louisville Youth Group, which are our kids affected are in families around LGBTQ people, or they are themselves. And we interviewed them or asked them questions to write stories and essays about. And then we 
took bits of all of those stories and created the GLBTQ Youth Project, which is a really powerful, compelling story. And most of those stories came from rural folks. Their experience is very different Mm -hmm. than the experience of LGBTQ plus people in the city and metro areas. And so that was really interesting and eye-opening for our audience, who I think may not have forgotten their roots if they came from a more rural area, but you know, it's still tough. Mm-hmm. You know, we in the city, we, we forget sometimes that it's not the same. Right. Everywhere. Probably a greater sense of isolation. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I would venture to say, not necessarily explored in that production that we created, but I would say that the, you know, mental health status is more problematic. Uh, rates of suicide probably are, are higher in those areas than they are in the city, mm-hmm. just because the resources are not there for them. And those are the kinds of stories that, that I really like to tell. You forget. We get isolated really in our own bubble in the in the cities and we forget. So tell us a little bit about your current season. I know that you've already completed one play, Torch yes, Song. Torch Song. And then you have a new one that's going to be coming up in November. Fun Home. I'm so excited. Fun Home. So we want to hear all about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we, as you say, we just finished Torch Song and, you know, asking about how we choose the plays and things. Torch Song trilogy. It's written by Harvey Firestein, and it hit Broadway in the 70s um, about gay life in 69, 70, and through the 80s. Maybe it was a little bit later that it hit. But this was an edited version that he did that had a recent revival on Broadway starring Michael Urey and Mercedes Rule as his mother. And as soon as I knew that it was hitting Broadway and he had edited it, I was very excited that we might be able to get it. And and we did get it pretty fast because it just had its life last year. Uh, I was nominated for a couple of Tonys, I think, for Best Revival. And I was excited about it because I love Torch Song Trilogy, but it is a very long play. It's almost four hours long. Oh, wow. And I think audiences nowadays have a really hard time sitting that long. <laughs> Short attention span. <laughs> yes. and, and I think we've all gotten used to like Netflix and yes. being able to pause stuff and go to right. the bathroom and fix right. our snacks. It's not so easy in the theater. Yeah. <laughs> and especially in our theater situation, if you get up to go to the bathroom or go to get a snack, everyone knows you're going. <laughs> you know? Um, so I was really excited that it was a shortened version because I do love the play. And I felt like that the uh, revival version was so much better, by today's standards, better, just simply because it was shorter and more succinct. I feel like he told the same story. He just told it in fewer words. And I don't know. I, I would love to chat with Harvey sometime and just say, do you like the revival version better? Because, you know, 40 years later... I feel like he's evolved as a playwright and entertainer himself. And probably, if he were honest about it, I think he might say, you know, I really do like the short version better. I was way too verbose in those days. <laughs> well, sometimes I find, uh, even with like editing this show, you know, it might be a certain length, but once you sort of edit out the extraneous stuff, it just boils it down yes. to the essence, which exactly. makes it more powerful. Yes. Anyway. Yes. So yes. I'm sure it's a similar thing. I'm sure it's a similar <laughs> thing. Yes. yes. Well, I'm a little interested by what you said, though, about once it was on Broadway, then getting it. How. How does that work if you want to do a play that's already on Broadway? Is there a process to being able to perform those plays? Begging does not help. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've tried. Um, well, our next show, Fun Home, which you all are interested in hearing yes. about, I know. I've been trying to get that show for three years. Oh. You know, the publishing companies know usually when they're going to pick up a property, whether it's on Broadway still or off Broadway, you know, they usually know when they're getting it. And the publisher of Fun Home started publicizing that 
that they had Fun Home and it was available for performance really quickly after it made its Broadway debut, which surprised me a lot. But I sent for the script and I inquired about it. And it did say on their website that it was restricted, which is usually code for we're holding this for the bigger companies Mm. and then we'll release it for smaller companies like us later. I I still ordered the script and I still was like, oh, maybe we can get it pretty quick because I really do like to get them off Broadway as quickly as I can. Not always easy, but I, I but I do try. And the first time I applied for the rights, it was denied. And I thought, okay, well, it's just not available to us yet. So then I applied again about six months later, and I got denied again. And that time, my rep at the publishing company emailed and, and just said, I know that you've applied for this twice. Let me keep an eye on it for you, and I'll let you know when it's going to be available for you. And I said, what's the holdup? And he said, there's another company in your region that has a hold on it. And usually that means that it's somebody much bigger than us. Actors Theater, the Broadway series, somebody big has a hold on it or it would get released. Our region encompasses a lot of the surrounding area too. So So would say like Chicago be in our area? No. Okay, no. so an area might be how big? I'm It'd just trying be, to Probably be picture. south of Indianapolis, just shy of Cincinnati. Probably wouldn't encompass Lexington. So maybe 50. So they don't want to be selling it to several companies in the same area? Yes and no. Okay. They, they don't want to sell it to a small company if a large company is getting ready to do it because the large company has a broader reach than we do. It, it will have a broader audience, which they're interested in, because then that helps sell it to other companies. But they also want to make money on it. Mm, and, right. the, and, and the bigger companies are going to make more money than they are on an amateur company like us. And we're considered amateur still because we don't pay our actors. We give them a little, small stipend, but not enough to be considered payment for, for their performance. You know, the larger companies pay royalties on the ticket sales. We pay a flat fee okay. for ours usually, but the bigger companies are paying based on their box office, and so they can make more money. Yeah, you know, it's just, just it's pure economics. Yeah, this is really interesting. I, know. I, I didn't know I, how I any of this worked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, did your rep email you and say it's available, or I, I kept applying anyway? <laughs> <laughs> so finally, he wrote to me and was like, "I think if you apply in the summer, you'll be able to get it for the next year." And this was last summer, I guess. And I was like, I was on it. And I got denied that time too. But he went to bat for us. And he called this time. And he was like, so there's still a company who has a hold on it. And I I said, who? And he said, I can't tell you who. So I know a lot of people in the business. So I started calling. <laughs> I was like, you rooted them out. I did, I did. I really wanted this show. And I really wanted us to be the ones who had the regional premiere of this show. And so I called my friends at the bigger places. And I said, do you all have a hold on this? I finally figured it out who had the hold. And one of them said, we do have it on hold. We're voting on our season at the end of this week. So I should know something by the end of this week. So I was on pins and needles and saw their season announcement and it was not in there. And I called him up and I was like, you all are not doing Fun Home, right? And he was like, no, we're not. I was like, have you called the publisher (laughs) to release it? And he said, I don't know if we have or not. So I was on the phone with Andrew the next minute. And I was like, I know that they're not doing it. Have they released it? And he was like, they have. I was like, I'm putting the application in now. And so we got it. 
Well, that's so awesome. So that, yeah. that, that is the hardest I've worked to get a, a title. <laughs> both Amy and I picked it up after we started talking to you through email. The, and we the, both, Fun Home. The soundtrack? Well, the, the, we graphic the, graphic novel. Graph, the graphic novel. We, yes, and so it's amazing. So can you give a, a bit of a summary of what mm-hmm. it's about? Yes. The graphic novel is much longer than the show, obviously. So the show really weaves two stories. One, the story of Allison, who is coming into her own and trying to figure out who she is. And that gets told by three different ages of Allison. There's a small Allison, a medium Allison, and just Allison, the older Allison, who is modern day. And it's about her figuring out her lesbianism, really, and dealing with the fact that her father was closeted gay man and yet chose to have a family and all of that stuff, but was miserable in his life and ultimately commit suicide. I don't think I'm giving any spoiler alert. I think that's pretty well known. So it really is the trajectory of her discovering herself in a great way and him declining in a really bad way. So it's the juxtaposition of those two stories that I think makes this really such a powerful piece. And for us, and one of the reasons I wanted to do it so badly is because it's a triumphant story for a lesbian. And, you know, it is the first show on Broadway that featured a lesbian protagonist. And also the decline of a gay man who made different choices than a lot of our audience made. And I think some of our audience have not forgotten that, but it's a great time to remind them because we haven't done a story like that in a long time where it doesn't end well for uh, somebody who's chosen. Do you think that was a generational thing? Yeah, absolutely was a generational thing, yeah. Mm -hmm. But also a regional thing, as we were discussing about Mm -hmm those in the rural area. I'm sure that there are some who still make the same choices that Bruce makes. Because it's based in rural Pennsylvania. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, one of the things, just because I'm an English major, I love the way the graphic novel weaves in a lot of these like literary references to Proust and and Oscar Wilde. And Mm -hmm. at the end, James Joyce, I understood Ulysses from reading this book in a way that I never understood Ulysses before. (laughs) But I would imagine that adding all that would be nearly impossible for a play. So it, it I assume... really is not happening in, okay. the, in the musical. They do reference them. Bruce, as he's calling Medium Allison, she's in college, she's college age, is asking her about various people that she's reading. And then later, older Allison mentions, he called to talk to me about all these reasons I should be studying so and so and so and so, you know, how I felt about Faulkner. and I thought it was really fascinating because I had read uh, James Joyce's Ulysses in college, mm-hmm. never understood it, but reading it, and I don't know, it was just, it really helped me kind of put it together. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't expecting that. I didn't yeah. really know what to expect. So mm-hmm. I enjoyed that. So you said Fun Home on Broadway. It was the first lesbian protagonist in a lead role. Mm-hmm. So what year did it come out on Broadway? 2015. 2015? Wow, that's really late. It's very late. To, to have... yes. That'd be the first. Gay men first have one. been on Broadway for years. Right. I mean, in roles like that. They, I mean, they've certainly had their share of, right. of roles that were not protagonist. But this is the first lesbian one. There have been other lesbian relationships on Broadway. You know, Falsettos, which we did a couple of years ago, introduced a lesbian couple sort of in the middle of the show. A happy, happy together lesbian couple, which we hadn't really seen before then. So this one is a musical. Mm-hmm. What are the challenges of doing a musical versus just a straight play? Hmm. They all have their own individual challenges. Every show does. But if I had to generalize what the differences are, 
you know, with a musical, you're dealing with musical director and a choreographer, and then consequently an orchestra or a band. So the logistics of those things is sometimes difficult. And then the delineation of who's doing what. Obviously, a musical director is working on the musical aspects of the show, but a good musical director, as ours is for this show, is also sharing things about, okay, why are you saying this? And why are you saying it on that pitch? You know, a lot of times a good composer is composing so that the pitch matches the emotion. And there are lots of good composers out there, but uh, this composer is really quite brilliant. And the other night, Russell, our musical director, was talking about the various motifs in the show. A motif is just a melodic line that reoccurs over and over again. And what Thank does it mean? Thank you for explaining that, because I don't think I knew. <laughs> I knew it in right. terms of literature, but I didn't know what it was in terms of music. It's a recurring theme, yeah. And this one has several of them. And Russell was pointing that out to the actors. Makes a great difference. But at the same time, I'm also directing, and I did the other night, the actress who's playing Helen, her song Days and Days and Days, you know, she's having a breakdown. It's, it's all of her life has been a lie, really. She's been married to this gay man who's really been risky, has risky behaviors, and really, really badly mistreated her. And it's the culmination of her falling apart about that. And we weren't really accessing the emotion of the song yet. It's built in. The composition is beautifully composed. But I just invited her to sit down and strip away all of the melody out of the song and just look at it as a monologue. And how would you deliver it if it were just a monologue? Made an amazing difference the next time she did the number. So we're all all sort of crossing paths, you Mm -hmm. know? And because I... I am a musician myself. I don't play in instruments, but I've, I've been singing all my life mm-hmm. and studied music. I know enough about music to be able to dip my toe over into that area without sounding like a complete <laughs> idiot. And I'm fortunate to have a musical director for this project who really gets the emotion of a, of a piece. Because he comes from an acting background, too. So, And then I have a choreographer who also gets both of those elements as well. So that works out great. For this show that you're doing for Fun Home, how far in advance... Did you start kind of the lead up and the rehearsals and all that? Mm -hmm. Usually we're rehearsing a musical for six to eight weeks. And we rehearse four to five days a week, sometimes six days a week. Would a non-musical be the same amount or is it more? No, I would rehearse that for four or five weeks. Okay, so it's longer for a musical. Longer for a musical, yeah. Because there's just the added elements of music and dance. Mm -hmm. This show doesn't have a lot of dance, but it still takes a little while to do I like to rehearse a show for an hour per page of dialogue or music. So that's a lot of hours, sometimes over 100. See, I'm always amazed when I hear somebody say that, because I'm thinking only six weeks. I mean, I, I think, well, like you started two years ago. You know, I mean, like that's how long it would take me to have to do it. Right. But it, it always seems to me like a very short mm-hmm. period of time to learn lines and get mm-hmm. all that down. But And that's just the rehearsal process. Mm-hmm. I've been working on the show. Well, since we got the rights to do it, I knew I was going to direct it. I, I do have guest directors, and I had a guest director for the last show, but I knew I wanted to do this show myself. So I've been preparing for this show for quite a while. So what does myself. that look like? I mean, when you when you say preparing mm-hmm. as a director, what were you doing? Uh, reading the script a lot, um, listening to the music to pick out the motifs. I mean, it takes, you know, listening. You can listen to it once, and you know 
when you hear a motif again, you're like, oh, that's Allison's motif, or that's the I don't know what to do with myself right now motif, you know, whatever it is, you can sort of start picking those out. But it takes listening to it over and over and over again to sort of hear them and really solidify what they are. And, you know, it takes a while and several readings of the script to get, you know, an idea about the characters and their arcs, their character story arcs. And then, you know, I'm also reading it and trying to visualize it as a director, thinking, okay, how do I conceive of that on my stage? And by my stage, I just mean our physical surroundings, it has limitations. I'm not doing it in the round like they did on Broadway, so I have to conceive it differently than they did on Broadway. I would want to conceive it differently anyway because I'm an artist, so I don't want to copy somebody else's work. I want to do my own. For this show, we have really totally reconceived it for ourselves, so I'm excited for people to see it who have seen it on Broadway or seen something similar to what was on Broadway because ours, I think, is very different. You know, the script, the music, everything is the same. The story is the same. But the setting the lights everything is really quite different which I think is really really cool I'd love to talk about that if you all want to ask yeah well I I I do want to ask you about the set and everything because this was a graphic novel obviously people who have read the graphic novel the pictures are there that have been drawn and Bruce the father is very into his Victorian home and remodeling (laughs) it and he's into antiques so I'm wondering were there any challenges because it was a graphic novel there are some pictures in the book what the scenery would look like and then how does that translate on the stage right and what are you doing with it right so um, that was a long version that of took saying, me a long tell time us about to say the props that. in the set yeah, tell us about the props in the set <laughs> so i'm glad you asked the question the way you asked it on broadway they used victorian furniture they were in the round so they didn't have walls of scenery they just had the furniture and they had hydraulic lifts to bring it up and down from the basement we don't have any of those things and you know as i was trying to conceive of the show we changed locations several times we're in the dorm room we're in different times periods also you know we we can't just carry on a big old heavy victorian desk every time we go to a library you know so how do we do that and as I was looking at the graphic novel at the same time, I was thinking, how do I put this on my stage? It just it occurred to me, well, why not do it like the graphic novel without the pictures of people? Because the people are on the stage telling the story. So our set concept for the show is the graphic novel and that the people are coming to life out of the graphic novel. And so our set is completely white including a white psych in the back and the band is behind the psych and we'll use projections of graphic novel like drawings like they're in the graphic novel on the on the walls oh, that's awesome that does sound really it's cool really cool right <laughs> that sounds really cool i'm very excited about it Can that's awesome and as soon as i started talking about it, you all both lit up yeah, i know <laughs> that sounds really cool <laughs> well and, it's, and it seems so innovative and yet so simple we I have mean, to be innovative yeah because our budgets aren't aren't what they have in new york <laughs> but but i kind of love that i mean i do too <laughs> you really have to think i mean outside mm, the, definitely i mean in outside some ways it's like box. right right <laughs> well or, or i was even thinking like you think of a graphic novel i mean they're in little boxes i mean that's what they are so in thinking outside the box mm-hmm. theatrically you're thinking inside, inside the, the box, box graphic novel wise so yeah, yeah. 
That was, yeah, very, that was a very cool. deep thought. Wasn't it? That was. That's about as deep as it's going to get. So what has the response been over the years to Pandora Productions and the shows that you've done? And I'm thinking in terms also of young people. Well, it seems like people who are in their 20s and teenagers, they just have a different idea uh, and acceptance of LGBTQ mm-hmm. individuals. So what right. has the response been in the almost 25 years that Pandora has been around? That is a very hard question. Uh, and the reason is, you know, younger people don't always have disposable income to go see shows, and they'd rather do something else with their money. You know, you mentioned Netflix earlier. People say, oh, you're in competition with so-and-so theater or this or that theater. I'm like, no, that is not my competition. I feel like they're building an audience for me and I'm building an audience for them. Our competition is Netflix because mm-hmm. it's so much easier just to stay home in your lounging pants <laughs> with a cocktail yeah. or snacks and sit in front of Netflix. Yeah. And you can pause it to go get more snacks and to refill your cocktail, <laughs> you know, which you can't really do in the theater. You know, we have full bar service. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> but it's hard to get young people in the audience. And this is not just a problem for Pandora. This is an industry-wide problem and challenge that all theater companies are working on. Of how to and, get young and all people. of the arts are, really. When was the last time you saw a teenager or a 20-something at the opera or the ballet? Mm-hmm. It's probably That's been true. a while. Yeah. You know, our, all of our audiences are aging. You know, I think we're pretty fortunate in that, you know, we have a 30s, 40s, early 50s crowd that I think would be the envy of some arts organizations, frankly. This is not a huge issue for us getting for younger people in, but the teens and the 20-somethings are very difficult to get in the door. So, you know, I mentioned the GLBTQ Youth Project that we did. You know, we take that for free to organizations who serve the youth. And we'll do that show. We also offer it to organizations that want to do that show for no royalties, just because we think it's important to be told. So that's a way of reaching out to a younger audience that aren't necessarily coming to see our usual product. You know, we do offer comp tickets to various groups and things. So sometimes that will bring young people in. But as far as seeking us out and actually handing over uh, 22 bucks for a ticket, they're not really doing that. Not very often. Now, <clears throat> occasionally, and it really lights my soul up when this happens, is I will see a young person come in to see a show that they know. For example, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. That's a show they know. It appeals to a younger crowd. And I will see them coming in with a parent who has brought them because they've said, this mm-hmm. really appeals to me these are the kind of people I am. Mm-hmm. Will you take me to this show? Just makes me very happy. Do you have young LGBTQ actors that oh, yeah. seek out Pandora Absolutely. because they want to be part of it? Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. definitely that. And conversely, we have straight actors who don't mind and actually love playing LGBTQ people. You know? So you don't, have to be, you don't have to be LGBTQ to be no. on the cast of any of your You really want to be in a show, don't you? <laughs> That's what she said. (laughs) I knew it. (laughs) I want front row seats to that show. (laughs) Well, give us all the nuts and bolts. When is this show happening? We open November 8th, and it runs through the 23rd, uh, mostly weekends. It's at the Henry Clay Theater. 
Okay. In the Henry Clay Building at 604 South 3rd Street. And are you all on Facebook, on Instagram, any of those things? All of those things. All of those all things. Of those just things. just yeah. look for Pandora Productions. Pandora Productions, yeah. And to buy tickets, can they go to a website? Mm-hmm. Pandora Prods, P-A-N-D-O-R-A-P-R-O-D-S dot org. Okay. For tickets. You can also search us on Eventbrite. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. All right, Carrie, what are you reading? <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me in a different way. I was I'm waiting. trying to think of different ways to say this because I feel like I say it the same way every time. So I'm thinking of new creative ways. Maybe I should just say it in a different voice. Um, I just finished, Amy, on The Way to Your House. It's called The House with a Clock in Its Walls by John Belayers, B-E-L-L-A-I-R-S. So... I listened to this on audiobook, and I liked it because it was short. So it's a juvenile, it's called a mystery fiction novel. I mean, it is sort of a mystery, but it's more of a creepy fantasy story. I don't really think of it being a mystery. So it features a boy named Louis Barnevelt, and he is orphaned, and he goes to live with his uncle Jonathan, and Uncle Jonathan has a house that connects to his neighbors, uh, Mrs. Zimmerman, who actually, like, she and and his Uncle Jonathan are kind of a couple. Anyway, he goes to live with his uncle, and his uncle has all these clocks all over the house. And so one night, Lewis wakes up in the middle of the night and sees his uncle going around and, like, stopping all the clocks. And he gets up and... His uncle tells him the story that there was a a warlock who owned this house with his wife, and his wife was a witch, and his uncle hears this ticking somewhere in the house, and so he has all the clocks to keep him from hearing this other ticking sound that comes from somewhere. They don't know where it comes from. So you discover that his uncle and Mrs. Zimmerman have some powers. Tarby is a boy that Lewis befriends, but then their relationship starts to sour. And so Lewis does something because he has access to books of witchcraft and wizardry. He sort of does something in a cemetery that... If I can relate to our guest that we had on today's episode, Lewis opens Pandora's box a little bit. And so things start to happen in the story that are a little, a little creepy, a little, a little unusual. So I won't tell you what happens, but it was really good. I really enjoyed the story. It's perfect for intermediate grades, you know, third through fifth or middle school. It has actually been made into a movie with Jack Black and I have not seen the movie yet but now that I have read it I'm thinking about suggesting that my sons listen to the audiobook and then we can watch the movie so I really enjoyed this but I did read that it is the first in a series of 12 novels featuring Louis Barnevelt that character I don't think I'm going to read all 12 but I have gone ahead and downloaded the second in the series because you know it was just it was a cute book that was fast and perfect for you know october halloweenish it's funny did you used to like to read series when you were that age 
No, I, not really. I mean, I read everything Judy Bloom wrote and I read Fudge, but that was like a series mm-hmm. of two, three. I don't know. Like I, what I would do was reread the same books over and over and over again. I think now I just have so many books that I want to read that I just can't commit myself to series. I wasn't a big series reader either. Now, I remember reading several Nancy Drew books. I remember reading some Encyclopedia Brown, but that was when I was a lot younger. I was not a big series reader. Now, I did read all the Harry Potters, but I mean, I wasn't a kid anymore. I was an adult when when those came out, but I didn't read them in sequence. I would wait until right before the movie came out. And now currently as an adult, I don't really want to read series. Now, I will sometimes read the first book in a series as long as it can stand alone. There are some series that really all the books can stand alone, like Tana French's The Dublin Murder Squad. Uh, I've read the first one, but from what I hear, all of them can stand alone. So I would be willing to read those. But it's too much commitment. I I don't want... (laughs) There's a series. It's called His Dark Materials. It's Mm. by uh, Philip Philip Pullman. Pullman. Mm -hmm. And I love that series. But it's three books. I have read The Lord of the Rings, but it's three books. Yeah, I I could do a triple. I could do a triple play. Now, I did, (laughs) about 18 years ago, I did read... Gosh, there were probably six books in the Ender. It starts with Ender's Game. Yeah. By Orson Scott Card. And I read, I think I read every single one of those. And I tried to read the Dune series and I probably got four or five books into it. But I don't know. I don't know if it's something as I get closer to 50 and I'm like, I don't know how long I'm going to live. And so I want to get as many new books. My whole point to this little side conversation is that I do feel even though maybe we weren't like that I feel that there's a lot of kids in the middle grade especially who like series or maybe even a little bit younger like if they find a book they like then it's a good thing to maybe have 12 books in a series because it keeps them reading right I mean my 12 year old went through all we bought was Geronimo Stilton I mean, we still have them. And he read probably seven books. I was Geronimo stilton out, but he wasn't. So I think the only series that I have read since my kids have, you know, been born, Mr. Putter and Tabby series. Have you heard of that? I have heard of it. Oh, they're adorable. Go get them. If you have a young reader, like I could read all those because it's about an old man and his cat. What else is better than that? <laughs> of course. Of course. course. Oh, so. I can't think of one series that I do like. It's a young adult series, but whenever a new book comes out, I always want to read it. And it's the Miss Peregrine School for Peculiar oh, Children. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't really know why I like them so much. I just do. I mean, it's kind of escapist fiction, but in those books, there are odd pictures in there mm-hmm. of like a picture of a child whose face is covered in bees or I can't think of another example right now but in the first books those started out those are real pictures from freak shows or different things and he kind of wrote a story to incorporate them and I love those there's a new one I think that's coming out soon but I do enjoy those and that's really the only besides Harry Potter the only series I can think of where I do want to read the new one all right well uh, since we kind of got off on that we did tangent, get on a tangent. Um, what are you, maybe about shows, what, what are you reading, Amy? What are you reading? <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. So I am finishing off my Halloween reading season. 
with a ghost Finishing story. off sounds like you're going to really take an axe to it or something. <laughs> I am going to take an axe to it. And it's a ghost story, but it is a light and funny one. And it's called The Canterville Ghost. And this is a short story that was written by Oscar Wilde back in 1887. And it was the first short story that he ever published. I found it because it was an audiobook. It was really quite a delightful audiobook. I think it was probably meant for children. I'd highly recommend it. I liked it on an audiobook because you can hear the difference between the high society English accent and then sort of the flat toned American accent. And then also there are all those background noises that you you normally hear in a haunted house, you know, like the, the wind howling and the door slamming and the chains banging. So the audio version was great. The story is about an American minister and his family. They move to Britain and they buy this estate that's owned by the Canterville family. And when they buy it, the Cantervilles warn them that the home is haunted. But the American family, the Otises, just they don't care. They don't really believe in ghosts. But when they move in, the housekeeper tells them that she's terrified of this ghost. And many of the family members have moved out because of the ghost disturbances. So very soon after the Otis family moves in, then, you know, these haunting things start happening. In this family, there's four children. There's an older teen boy a daughter named Virginia, and she's probably 10 or 11. And then there's this pair of male twins who are the youngest. And they are like, I just, you just get the sense that they're like little demons, you know? So the ghost is a century old ghost. His name was Simon Canterville. And he killed his wife in the house. And then her brothers drug him to the dungeon and left him there to die of starvation. So that's why he's haunting the house. So as soon as they move in, ghostly things start happening. But the family just kind of refuses to be scared. In one scene, which I thought was funny, the ghost comes out. But he comes out with his loud chains to haunt the halls. Mr. Otis opens up the door and hands him a bottle of Rising Sun Lubricator so that his chains (laughs) won't be so rusty and noisy. And the, the twin boys start fighting back, set booby traps for the ghost so that like water will fall on his head. And it gets so that the ghost is terrified of these <laughs> t- twin boys. But the lovely Virginia, she befriends the ghost. And that's where I'm going to end with giving you a description of this book, because obviously it's a short story. I don't want to tell you the whole thing. But I thought it was delightful. Oscar Wilde wrote quite a few fairy tales for children. And I don't think that they usually include this one with those fairy tales. I don't don't think they categorize it like that. But it does have a childlike quality to it. And there's actually a little bit of romance in it. But it's interesting what we're talking about today. Oscar Wilde, he was an Irish poet. He was a writer, a playwright. He's best known for his play, The Importance of Being Earnest, and his short novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. But he also was imprisoned for being a homosexual. And he was sent to a prison for hard labor for two years. And it was a very sensational trial at that time. That's what I've been reading. I would recommend listening to that audio book. And if you want to actually read a copy, there are several places you can find it for free online. Gutenberg.com or eastoftheweb.com also. I found it and you can just read it outright if you want to. Um, There you go. All right. Sounds You got nothing to say about that, Carrie? No. No. Unless I can talk in this you're gonna make me pee my pants (laughs) when we come back we're gonna get michael drury's top five
are back with Michael Drury, the producing artistic director at Pandora Productions, and we are going to ask him his top five. Michael, you said you love Mexico. So what is the top place in Mexico that you like to visit and why? I love Mexico. I love the culture. We go to Cabo San Lucas every year, whether we want to or not. (laughs) Um, It is our vacation spot. And eventually, my husband and I would like to retire there part-time somewhere up the coast, away from Cabo. I don't think that we want to be retired in such a busy, busy place. But we love Todos Santos and San Jose, Del Cabo, places up the coast a little bit. So how did you discover that that was your spot? I mean, did did you just go there on a trip just because? Yes. Two friends of mine called me up one day. It was after my previous partner had passed away and they were like, you've got to get out of the house. We have a timeshare somewhere. And they said, oh, why don't we trade it and go somewhere? And we picked someplace on the map and it was Cabo. Why don't you go with us? And I had been vacationing with them for a little while. And we went to Cabo and fell in love with it immediately. And we both bought timeshares. And that's how I started going. And while we were down there, in fact, we lived through a hurricane. We had, so you know you can do it. <laughs> I know I can do it, yeah. I don't really ever want to do it again, but I know I can. It was a, only a Category 1 hurricane, but it sat on top of them for like three days and was really devastating to, to them. And, and I think that that's another reason why I fell in love with them, because I just fell in love with the people and how resilient they sort of were through that. I mean, it just seemed just unimaginable to me, but... They rallied and just were cleaning up like the as soon as the wind had died down. I love the ocean because the ocean makes me feel poetic. And I feel like that my soul just sort of resonates on that pulse. I could say the same thing about string music that does the same thing to me. Like it just takes me away and makes me, I don't know, feel poetic and musical and spiritual, I guess. That's a lovely yeah. answer. I know. I know it is. So what is the top reason that you consider yourself a Trekkie? Is this a crazy thing? Most people find it unusual that I'm a Star Trek fan. I love Star Trek. I love Star Trek because they're so moral. And when they're not moral, they check themselves on it. And it's so different than I feel like our society is today, or at least our political discourse is not that way anymore. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love it so much. Plus, it's fantastical. And, you know, I love space anyway. So just the idea of traveling in space, I just love. My favorite Star Trek is Star Trek Voyager. And I don't know if you all know that one, but that's the one that had the female captain. I would have followed her Kate Mulgrew. Kate Mulgrew. Brilliant actress. I feel like I should explain why I knew Kate Mulgrew, because I am married to a person who loves Star Trek. So we watched, I mean, I don't know if you consider him like full on Trekkie, but he's almost there. So So you've seen every episode of Voyager. I've seen quite a few. Yeah. There was a time when I probably could have told you the star date of every single episode. That's how into that show I was. Wow. I don't know much about Star Trek, but my father loved the original Star Trek Mm -hmm. with William Shatner. So I remember watching Mm -hmm. Star Trek reruns with my dad. Mm -hmm. That's kind of, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right, question number three. You love old Broadway musicals. What is your top musical dating prior to 1980, and why is it your top? And also, I'm throwing in an extra one. What Uh is it about pre-1980 musicals that interests you? Well, I'll answer uh, the last one first, because that was the era I grew up in. And so that's what I listened to. Do I have a favorite? I'm not sure I have a favorite. I just love musicals. 
In fact, I usually joke and say my life is a Broadway musical <laughs> because I can almost sing a lyric if something comes up. I can sing a lyric that is apropos of what just was said. And people are like, you're a freak. <laughs> um, that is my favorite time. But I'm kind of digging modern things now more than I was. The modern things now to me are a little poppy. And I'm not sure I like that quality of them. I think I like the pre-80s ones because they were much more lyrical and not operatic per se, but they were more classical feeling mm. to me. I think that's why I like them more. And I love My Fair Lady. Mm. It's one of my favorites, and it's on my bucket list. I would love to play Henry Higgins. Modern ones that I want I really on my bucket list is uh, Javert and Les Mis. See, I'm talking like an actor. <laughs> there are things that I would like to direct as well. But, uh, <laughs> but I was an actor before I was a director. And I don't get to act very often anymore. I've not seen very many Broadway shows. The first Broadway show I saw, I think, was probably one of Andrew Lloyd Webber's worst ones. <laughs> but it was Starlight Express. Oh, that Do was you re- his worst one. Oh, yeah. my gosh. <laughs> so for those who don't know. Pretty good of- music. And you were 16. I was 16, yeah. and there was a high school trip. But this one was where the- all the actors were supposed to be trains. They trained. So they yeah. had like these tracks that went all around the audience, and all mm-hmm. of the actors had on roller skates and they would, they would skate around on this track all the way around that that was my first broadway experience i wouldn't say it was my favorite <laughs> but it was interesting <laughs> my first broadway show that i saw was annie um in the old alvin theater and we were way up in the nosebleed section but i saw sarah jessica parker as annie it was after andrea mccardle had left the show sarah jessica parker was annie and alice ghostly you all remember Mm. from Bewitched, was Hannigan. I think that was one of Sarah Jessica Parker's first roles. I think it was. Yeah. yeah. And I think she had come up from The Other Orphans. Number four is, what is the top thing about acting that first attracted you to it? I did a play in junior high school called Puppy Love. (laughs) (laughs) And then after that, I got involved with the community theater. And I just really fell in love with acting. I think as a young gay boy growing up, I really had a hard time figuring out who I was. And so it was often easier for me to escape and be somebody else than it was to really be who I was, honestly. I think Mm -hmm. that's why I originally got involved in acting in theater at all. And, you know, theater, kind of a melting pot of people. And I think a lot of people who can't find their way some other way gravitate toward theater because we're kind of a loving, accepting, it doesn't really matter who you are, where you came from, we don't care. Can you hold a, a board while I put a nail in it? I mean, it just doesn't matter. You know, we don't care. So I think that's why, probably, that I fell in love with acting and therefore theater. So question number five. If you weren't a producing artistic director and could do anything, what is the top profession you'd like to have and why? Oh, my gosh. This is so hard. <laughs> You're being graded. <laughs> You know, here's the thing. I think I have the greatest job in the world. And and when I think about doing something else, it's usually not because I don't like what I'm doing. Because I really, really love what I'm doing. The times where I get to thinking that I want to do something else, it's because it's more attractive economically. You know, theater doesn't pay a whole lot. And I knew that when I got into the business. And so it's not that I care that much, but... 
because I'm also a producer, I move around in circles of people who have money. And I don't. And so sometimes I wish I could do the things that they do. I wish I could afford to go to New York and see stuff all the time, but I just can't. That's usually when I think, oh, I should have made a different choice. <laughs> but then I direct a play that has a great deal of meaning for me. Or I see the parent with a child come in to see Hedwig. And they're like, oh, my, they're so excited about it because they're going to see themselves on stage. And I think, you know, it doesn't matter that you're not making a lot of money. You're making a difference in the world. And But you are making a difference in the world. I am making a difference You in the are world. making a difference. I think it's much more yeah. important to follow your passion. Yeah. And that's what I tell my kids. I have met quite a few, a lot of miserable lawyers. Yeah. No, we, yeah. the world does not need more miserable lawyers. <laughs> well, and, and because I was trying to make a living as an actor for so many years, I did a lot of different jobs. So I got to try a lot of different things. I waited a lot of tables. I was secretary to a lot of people who I really didn't care for. But I also worked for some really, really great people. The thing about all of those jobs is it taught me that I couldn't really be the person who sat in an office for 40 years and then retire. I knew that was not for me. But it, all of those jobs also gave me the skills that I needed to do the job I'm doing now. So none of it was an accident. I feel like I was exactly where I needed to be when I was there and I'm exactly where I need to be because that's where I am, right? I don't wish to be somewhere else necessarily. Yeah. When I think about other jobs, I think about not that I dislike any of the things I do, but I sometimes have this idea, like, even though I really have no skill and mm -hmm. no ability right. and really no tolerance for that, like, I think it would be great to have a farm and to be a farmer and to oh, have my yeah. animals. And mm -hmm. realistically, I need to be within five miles of a Target <laughs> because <laughs> I'm like, I got to be able to get toilet paper at the Target when I need to and not drive for an hour. But I have these, you know, idealistic visions of, oh, wouldn't that be... You know, it'd probably suck. You would hate that. <laughs> I would hate that. You would hate that. Well, all things being equal, I think, oh, well, I would love to be a Broadway star. Mm. Well, yeah. Right. But at the same time, I also know that I, I learned by doing those office jobs that I didn't want to do that for 40 years. I also found out when I was being a professional actor in runs of shows that were lasting nine or 10 weeks, I get really bored just like I was in an office. I mean, I like the creative process of mm. theater more than I actually like the performance of the theater. So I really am in the perfect job That's for me. Great. <laughs> and on that note, we are going to say thank you thank to you. you. This was fun. Well, good. We gl we're glad you were here. We're so <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www perksofbeingabooklover.com Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.